Hammer. Your story begins with a ship called the Black Anchor, a two-mast galleon sailing out of Port Sand, a ship which made a name for itself, sailing piracy protection for the vessels in the North Sea under the flag of King Henrik, and even making some of the dangerous and dreaded journeys along the Catholic coast as far as the Deadlands and even terrible Innsmouth. This ship knew many crews over the years, and you have found yourself on the decks. A rigman, or perhaps a scout, doomed to those long days in the crow's nest. And all was well and all was normal, riding out the doldrums long days at sea, until one ill-fated voyage changed everything. It was simple transport, simple cargo voyage. From Cath, down near the jungle ports that no longer have names men can produce, all the way up to New Haven, the North Sea. And your cargo, a single, reinforced, black pine crate. This crate had clearly seen better years, and now was held together with a series of nails, rivets, leather belts, straps. It was older than the ship itself, and gave off a strange air of heat, musty warmth, or even a cloud of its own strange, dusty age, and inside... Muffled clicking and whirring sounds could be heard, and the minute it came on board, all the crew, especially the captain, were terribly uneasy. Along with this crate came a gnomish fellow, strange, sullen, somewhat seeming disoriented or dreadful with his charge to accompany this cargo all the way north. He did not introduce himself, stayed to the hull and never left eyeshot of that strange box, eating only jerky and a small skin of red wine he had brought from the Deadlands. No one spoke to him, and he kept to himself in the shadows in a way that made the voyage even more uncomfortable. But discomfort was only the beginning, for the ship became lost somewhere up along the Kawabi coast, as far north even as the steppes, and in that strange set of straits and jagged stones, the winds seemed to change, the fog obscured the sun. No stone or method could navigate the confusion. But this was only the beginning, for then men began to disappear, some of the most fielded sailors on the vessel either falling into the ocean, simply vanishing, 
or being found dead, their faces frozen expressions of pure horror. And so our tale begins, with you standing one dreary morning on the deck of the black anchor, looking out into that gray void, wondering if this confusion will ever end, and if it has some inexorable, some terrible, some unexplainable link to that dreadful box in the hold, clicking and whirring, each night beneath the creaking of the masts, and the billowing of the sails, you hear that clicking, that whirring. What could be inside that box? And what is it doing to the ship and its crew? Oh boy, it's goofier every time. Greetings, programs. Welcome back to the RPG mainframe. This is Rune Hammer. My name is Hank Rune They always call me Ingrid Bernal up in the mountains. I'm both, I'm neither. Brandish Gilhelm, your host here on Rune Hammer. It's a big day on the podcast. Boom! Episode 30 of the RPG Mainframe. We have made it through 30 episodes of this here podcast. And thanks in large part, in almost in, in entirety, to you guys for supporting my Patreon page and for supporting Rune Hammer in general, showing up on YouTube, Facebook, hanging out. Oh my gosh. And of course, throwing down in the index card RPG Google Plus group and just getting that book to tables. Thank you everybody for showing up and welcome to episode 30. RPG mainframe. Okay. Hey, enough weird stuff. I just get a little excited sometimes. This uh, for um, episode 30 here. We've got a super fun topic. Now, we talked a little bit uh, on a survey there about what we're going to talk about. And the clear winner, by the way, thank you, everybody, for throwing down your votes. The clear winner for episode 30 is the concept, the methodology, and the goals and dreams of creating cultures for your tabletop RPG. So as you may have gathered from my intro here on episode 30, I'm kind of dreaming up this campaign starting concept, which is going straight to my table. So once again, uh, if you're in my group uh, and there's currently three of you, you know who you are, just stop the podcast right now. Shoot, just get on out of here. Sorry, but I'm just going to start filling more and more of my media with total spoilers because I really want to share with the audience at large my entire creative process. And that just means spoilers galore. So as the intro implies... I'm working on a ship-based start to my new campaign. And my new campaign picks up where my old one did, where it left off, I mean, two years ago. But this new one starts on this ship called the Black Anchor. And creating cultures, 
The subject of today's podcast is very salient because I want to have an interesting feel of contrast between the cultures of the Catholic coast down in the south of Alfheim and then just a little bit further east when you reach uh, the Zivosian Islands and, of course, the Deadlands and Innsmouth. And I really want that contrast to be something that can drive a little bit of story, but also drive simpler things. You know, story can be a, a very nuanced and complex value to look for in your RPG, right? It can be elusive. Um, it, it implies that you're sort of a novelist at heart, right? And hey, writing novels is really difficult. But on a simpler level, I want to use this cultural contrast to drive home who the good guys are and who the villains are. This is something really basic that you want to be potently apparent, potently apparent in your game so that your players can always easily recognize at least one of your primary villain factions. Now, you guys have probably experienced this in games both as DMs and as players, is that there's this sort of clear delineation of, at least in part of the campaign, of, oh, here come the bad guys. Um, as an example, I just finished reading Dauntelgrim by R.A. Salvatore, and they use these Ashmedai priests, right? And this is a pretty uh, steadfast trope of our hobby, is this sort of uh, evil suicide warrior cult, right? And anytime you see these guys in these red robes with these morning stars, you know, they're running up and their faces are covered with black cloth and stuff. You know, okay, these are all guys, these are bad guys. If we don't kill these guys, they're going to kill a bunch of people in town. And so it's it's morally okay to take these guys out. Let's get into this fight and chop them up, okay? And And it just gives you this baseline evil that's really useful to a DM. Now, another uh, sort of version of this that I use a lot is skeletons. Skeletons are the same thing, right? There's an army of skeletons that has been raised by an evil wizard. And anytime you see these skeletons with this blue light in their eyes or whatever, you know, okay, you know, here comes the sort of the main, the main uh, meat and potatoes bad guys. Let's fight these guys, okay? Now, it's a little cheesy. It shouldn't make up your entire campaign. But it is a really useful tool to drive player motivation, to get some action going. And when you're not sure what to do as a DM, these guys are always reliable as a constant source of danger. And so what I want to talk about today is not this sort of uh, meat and potatoes bad guy stuff. It's cultural delineation or cultural variety in your game, creating cultures in your game with the outcome partially being a clear de delineation or a clear feeling of the, a who's who in your world uh, so that you get feelings in your game of familiarity and you get feelings of foreignness or of strangeness or of distant lands. Now, one trap that is often sort of tumbled into on accident in D&D that makes me want to have this discussion about creating cultures is that we accidentally make these huge fantasy worlds where everyone has a sort of a uh, a version of a British accent with a medieval intonation, right? <laughs> you could go anywhere in your fantasy world and everybody's like, hello, would you like to buy some fruit? I'm the local fruit vendor and I sell fruit and I live in a jungle. And then you go all the way up north to the land of the Vikings and they're like, hello, would you like to buy some fruit? I sell fruit. <laughs> right? So what I want to talk about is some methods that you can use in your game to create different cultures without getting into a huge task. 
that are going to drive some of it home and hopefully get some response from your players, both in knowing and adapting to these cultures in fun ways, mainly through role-playing, and a little bit through practicality too, and we're going to talk about both sides, that can lead to this feeling of being on far shores or being in a distant land. Now, before we really get into the details of this, I just want to, you know, throw in a little real world, a real world explanation. As many of you know, I just returned from a huge trip to Greece and took two weeks to explore as much of Greece, Greece as I possibly could, to meet as many people as I could, to speak as much Greek as I possibly could, to just fully get into it. And upon returning home, nothing was more on my mind as far as wisdom gained for the RPG hobby than this sensation of difference between familiarity and the foreign. And actually how fascinating it is, and most importantly, most salient to today's podcast, is how few elements are actually needed to create this sense of a different culture. And that's what I want to talk about today. You guys know how I always want to boil things down to four or five bullet points because I just don't have the brain capacity to hold these huge cultural designs. So the premise of my podcast today is that designing an entire culture from a historical, anthropological, geopolitical, geological, geographical point of view is just too much to do. I'm not ready to design an entire multi-century history for the Catholic coast, for example, for my campaign. But I do need something that's going to give me cultural differentiation. I don't want to come up with a thousand years of history that no one's ever going to know. A whole language, a whole alphabet, a whole architecture tradition, all, all this stuff that never really has a palpable or usable or tangible impact on the game. I want to do the minimum amount of stuff to get the maximum amount of awesome. And that is the theme of today's podcast. Let's talk about creating cultures, cultures, cultures. That was a sort of a culture in itself, a culture of making dumb noises. Okay, so let's talk about creating cultures. Now I've got four elements. That's it. Four elements that you need to bullet out for each culture. So let's say you're doing two cultures, right? You've got this ship, the Black Anchor. It's sailing along the Catholic coast, the southern coast of Alfheim. You want to create a feeling of difference between the Catholic folk who are jungle dwellers, people who live sort of this uh, almost, um, what, almost like a Southeast Asian feel. And then as you go east and things start to bend northward toward Olo and toward the Greenway, you get more into an Innsmouth feel or a sort of dark, soggy feel, almost like the south of England or something, right? But a little warmer than that, a little more temperate, but still a vastly different culture. And they're divided by the Deadlands. Okay, so let's say that's your sort of premise. And you need to come up with four bullet points to create a culture. That's it. All you need to do is fill in these four bullets, and I'm just going to hit you with them, and then we'll break each one down and why I'm recommending that this is how you do it, okay? So here are the four, four bullets. The first one, the greeting. What is the greeting of this culture? Number two, 
the trigger custom. What is the trigger custom of this culture? What's the thing that they take the most offense to if not done? Number three, what are the values of this culture? And, and this, has, this can be one thing or maybe three things, but what are the, the core reasons that this culture exists? And number four, what is a visual cue that you can always rely on in every aspect of life in this culture? That's it. Those four things. So now let's go through them one by one and talk about why these are the most important things that you need to list out really quickly to get a feel for a culture in your RPG world. First of all, and I really have to say this is maybe the most important one to me, is the greeting. Every culture has a super common greeting. And this greeting is used hundreds of times a day. And actually, if you think about it, the greeting is sometimes the only thing that people will do with their role playing. Okay, what am I talking about? Let's take a few examples. In the States, we say hello and we say hi, right? We don't really that commonly say good day. Or, you know, or good evening. That's much more formal. It's, it's honestly a little bit odd. We say hello and hi. We say hello probably the most. Hi is for our friends, but we say hello a lot. I mean, as you go through your day, going to different businesses, going to work, all this stuff, you say hello a lot. Hello is a very dry greeting because we say it so much in the English-speaking world. It has zero flavor. Now, let's switch over to Renfair. You go to Renfair. When you greet people at Renfair, you don't say hello. You say good morrow, right? Good morrow. Good morrow. Good well, be morrow, do be merry, good mellow, good merry, good morrow. Blah, 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 blah. You can good morrow it any way you want. <laughs> but good morrow is the greeting. And have you guys ever noticed this? Sometimes a character will be role-playing with an NPC in your game. They'll come up to the sort of, you know, walk up to, in quotes, the NPC and say, you know, good day, sir. That like, how many times do you hear good day, sir, in an RPG session? Like always it's in there a lot, right? But then after that greeting, they'll start speaking in their normal voice and they'll assume that the table knows they're being their character. They don't need to speak with an accent and with weird sort of um, verbal idioms throughout their interaction with this NPC. But they'll almost always greet an NPC with, a, with an in-theme greeting, like good day, sir, or hail. That's a pretty, a really good one too. You there, or, you know, ho there is another one you hear a lot in RPGs. Now, if you flip this on its head and you say, in, in the Catholic coast, if you say hail or good morrow or, you know, you there, sir, or, you know, good day, sir, they don't understand what you're saying. Actually, they start to back away. They kind of are just like, oh, foreigners, outsiders, ugh, right? They don't say that, but that's the look on their face. For down in the Catholic coast, the greeting used by all is yasas. Yasas. That is what they say to start conversations, to greet vendors, to show respect to one another. Now, you don't have to get into the entire language of this culture because, honestly, you don't have the time to build all that information. And it's going to be assumed at the table that other cultures are speaking another language. Maybe your character that's in, engaged in this current exchange speaks Catholic. Okay, that's fine. You don't need to actually speak this weird language at the table. That's not going to happen. Um, 
But what you can say is as a player, you remember to greet an NPC with yasas. Okay, and then I ask the guy, hey, can we buy some bananas? Okay, that would be an example. Now, why is this so important? Why am I putting so much gravity on this? I think it's because, A, it's really easy to role play for anybody at any level of comfort at the table. And once you inform them, the common greeting of the Catholic coast is not good day, hello, or good morrow. In fact, the people of this area take offense to those greetings. Here they all greet each other and part ways by saying, Yasas. A good and savvy player at that moment is going to remember that fact and then greet the next NPC with this greeting. Ah, Yasas, my friend. And there is a mechanical benefit. And this is where the rubber hits the road of creating cultures. You reward your player for using the greeting of that land. Now, let's get back to contrast. Remember, we want to contrast the Catholic coast to Innsmouth, the Deadlands, and beyond. In those parts of the world, they always say good day. Good day, sir. Just to make things easy. So when that transition occurs between yasas, my friend, yasas, and good day, sir. This is something that a player can feel pride in their role-playing without doing a whole bunch of elaborate role-playing, but they can remember this fundamental verbal cue. It makes your world feels like it, feel like it have multiple languages. It makes your world feels like it have different cultures. It makes your NPCs feel like they have meaningful reactions to being spoken to in their own language. And it goes a long way. There is a ton of mileage in this. Let's take it all the way over to Eredrum, to a dwarven culture. And then I'm bulleting out my, my, my new culture and I need my four, my four bullets. So I look at the greeting and I'm like, hmm, well, these guys are always miners. They're down deep in the mountains. And maybe their greeting is good mining. But over the years, it's been boiled down because you say good mining so many times every day. It's become good men. Good men, dwarves, good men or well-mine, or something like this. Now, it's very simple. Or you can make it a completely arbitrary word, like, you know, a bar. A bar, my friend, a bar. Ah, a bar. You know, you tap each other on the, you pat each other on the back and say, a bar, you good dwarf, a bar. And someone asks, why is the greeting a bar in this land? It's strange. Is it because you guys spend all your time in bars? And it's like, oh, no. Abar is an ancient word that was used as a blessing for those going down into the mines, and it's a reference to the Sundabari. But over the years, it's been reduced down to a simple word, Abar, which means a good day of mining to you. Once again, this is something that's very easy for a player to take note of, to role play, and to gain mechanical benefits, say in vendor prices or NPC reactions, the greeting. The greeting, the greeting, the greeting. The number one bullet, if you ask me, for creating cultures in your RPG. Now, obviously, this is on my mind because when you're traveling in a foreign country, one of the first things you can do to be courteous, to show your interest and your appreciation of their culture, is to greet them in their own language. And at first, it's a little intimidating. You can, you know, you can feel a little shy about it. But after a few weeks, it's second nature and you, it is a great feeling. And then to return home and to return to your own language and your own greetings, you really do have a wider mind. As Aristotle said, 
Travel is the enemy of ignorance. And nowhere is this more true and simple to appreciate in the many and varied and beautiful and simple greetings in our world. Okay, bullet number two, the trigger custom. A trigger custom can be something that you're looking for, that you want your player to either do or not do when interacting with a culture. Now, the simplest, most sort of exaggerated example that I can think of is the trigger custom of bowing in many Eastern cultures here on Earth. Okay, so when you are trying to be polite or when you're grateful or when a trade is completed or a business transaction, there is, there is a bow, a respectful bow. And I know that there's bowing in other cultures. It's, it's not just a stereotype of Eastern cultures, but I do think it plays a bigger role in, say, Japanese culture than it would in, you know, medieval Europe. Even though medieval Europe totally had bowing and curtsying and so on and so forth. But in Japan, I think it's a core trigger custom. And if you're to, to blow it off and not do it, that can gain a more negative reaction. I would say that the trigger custom in America is probably shaking hands. And in my case as an individual, it's the warrior's grip. This is a critical custom that I use with people to break down some of their barriers between us, to befriend them quicker, and to invite them to be a little crazy, be a little different. And I know that this may seem small, but this is something that it's easy, again, to be written down by a player. In these faraway lands, it's very strange. Everyone here exchanges a small pebble at the end of a business transaction, a seemingly worthless bauble from the beach. But if the pebble is neglected, you can earn a terrible reputation in town and eventually find yourselves banned from all vendors and restaurants. It's very strange. So don't forget to keep a pocket full of pebbles. Now, this is totally arbitrary, but what it does is the same thing as the greeting. It lets a player discover, learn, and annotate different cultures in a boiled-down fashion that then they can use to gain mechanical benefit. It also allows you, as the dungeon master, to find fun excuses to drive the story forward when the trigger custom is either used or neglected to affect so other examples of trigger customs could be things used during trade. It could be subservience. It could be that there's a caste system, that the caste system demands respect from certain castes to the other. It could be a certain form of dress, sort of like, um, you know, maybe all people of high standing in a certain culture wear this red sash. And if you don't wear it, like, actually, no one even talks to you. You're an unmentionable. You're, you're in the slave cl class. And this sash is actually sacred to their culture in ways that are expandable and describable or neglectable by the DM as you see fit and as going to work for your adventure. But the players notice all these different people moving around town with these red sashes. You see, and this just gives you your one little bullet item rather than inventing an entire culture. You're just focusing in on one little custom, and it turns out that the sash is actually traded from person to person, that these sashes are inherited, and so on and so forth. Okay, now the next one is not quite as simple, is deeper, but you're going to apply a lot of creative discipline here, and you're going to keep this from flying out of control, and these are the values of the culture. 
Now, one such value might be that, um, you know, it could be something as simple as honor. This culture is driven by honor. And that can take all kinds of different forms, which you can improvise during a game session. You know, like they do things like home gang. And, you know, chivalry is taken extremely seriously in an honor-bound culture. You know, women are treated with great reverence and always respected in all ways and, you know, uh, basically uh, deferred to. You know, men step out of the way for women. Always open the door. Always, you know, like regale them and stuff like this. This could be a fundamental value, a, a, a matriarchal culture. You could say that their fundamental value is that, you know, women are sort of sacred in a way to this culture. Or you could flip it, probably going to be a little less popular, but you could say, you know, this is a patriarchal culture in the extreme and women are subservient to men in this culture. Now, whether this is sort of right or wrong in our present day perception of social structure isn't your responsibility at the DM. Your responsibility is to create differentiation between cultures. Maybe the values of a culture are generosity. Maybe the values of a culture are bravery. And so if a challenge arises, everyone raises their hand to go on the adventure. Maybe the core values of a culture are self-sacrifice. Maybe they're non-violence. That could be an interesting one. I've heard that the, the priests of the Coab coasts are adamantly non-violent. Even when being beaten with a rattan club, they will never fight back. It's remarkable. You see, this is one little sort of exaggerated fact or maybe two little bullets about a culture that give it its flavor. Maybe their value is cannibalism. Now, this is a little clumsier, anthropologically speaking, but it works in giving you differentiation. And cannibalism is a pretty wild example of a culture's core value. But remember, sometimes you're defining a culture because it's a fundamentally evil culture. And you want that message to get across to your players. The core value of the Catholic jungle dwellers is the reverence and practice of cannibalism. And no meal do they covet more than that of devouring their own leaders and holy men. So when you encounter these guys, you know... This is kind of dark. Now, they have all kinds of internal justification and ritual around cannibalism, but let's face it, it's really hard to see the bright side of cannibalism. <laughs> so the core value that you look for in your culture can be anything from small to large, good to evil, you know, honorable or dishonorable, but it's just one little bullet that, again, gives you this sort of tone that lets you improvise in multiple ways later. And no element on the four bullets is more uh, quick to hit the road than the fourth one, which is a single visual cue. Now, throughout every game as a dungeon master, you're constantly describing how things look, right? Even if you have the coolest terrain and all the minis in the world, you're still going to spend a lot of energy describing things. And so this fourth bullet is going to give you ammunition to describe, visually describe this culture. Now, an example that we could look for here in the world, it could be something like the kimono of Japan, right? So you say everything or most things in this culture feature a silken element. 
Silk is one of their primary exports. They have a great reverence for silk. They actually create some of the finest silk in the world. And even when fully armored, a warrior of this particular culture will feature a, a small little billowing uh, sash or belt of silk. And maybe even it has a particular color, like gold silk, for example. And even on the buildings, they, they're regaled with these draperies of gold and silk. Okay, let's, let's go a different direction with something, like the sort of dark mud of Innsmouth. Now, Innsmouth is a shore town or a port town that has been plagued by the presence of Dagon or whatever, the Kraken, you know, whatever dark ocean god you have in your world. And it actually has darkened the mud and the sand and the soil of this place. And, and so dark is this soil it's actually come to stain the bricks in their land and the shingles. And even their clothing is generally been stained dark by this black mud or soot or soil. And the, the, there's, you, you encounter people who have it even smeared on their faces or it's, it's used in a poultice or even their beer. They drink black gar and so on and so on and so forth. Now, I'm just improvising. But you're improvising based on a single visual cue. That's what I'm coaching you toward here, is that this culture is divined by a single visual cue that can be elaborated upon in a million different ways. Another example might be the intricate brocade patterns of Middle Eastern cultures here on Earth. And these are these sort of lotus patterns that overlap in all kinds of mathematic variety that can be very fascinating. It's on their architecture, it's on their clothing, it's even in the tile work of their streets. And so right away, I'm going to stop talking. That's the only visual cue. Let's say that's all I ever describe. So much can be conjured in the mind of the player by that single visual cue. It must be a wealthy culture. It must be an advanced culture. They must have an advanced architectural tradition to be able to execute these, these street cobbles that are so intricate. And also the royalty here, my goodness, their robes are just fascinating with all these patterns and brocade. And then the sailors have these tattoos. Maybe their armor is even etched with these intricate brocade patterns. It just, on it goes. And you start to get a feel for things, an emotional response, all based on a single visual Q, and that is your fourth bullet. Now, how exactly does a cultural creation in your game hit the pavement? What form is it going to take? Okay, so let's talk about that really quick. First of all, I think the simplest one that you can see is the reaction component. When your players are interacting with NPCs from X culture, the reactions, the sort of the, you know, is this a favorable or unfavorable reaction? That's the simplest. It's like a binary reaction component to any NPC interaction. You're going to get good prices or bad prices, right? That's, that's the simplest, most boneheaded one. Now, there's a lot more than that, but that's the easiest one to think about. Exactly what kind of reactions you're going to get from NPCs are a direct function of the player's awareness and use of cultural um, tidbits in the interaction. So reactions, that's your first way you really get dividends out of creating different cultures. And secondly, what I've already been playing with throughout this podcast is descriptions. If you have these four bullets for your culture, suddenly describing this culture becomes much easier and more important than ease. Detail, nuance, subtlety, richness, immersion. 
You have a better chance of doing a killer description on a scene or a character if you have these core cultural bullets ready to go. The next we have, and this one gets a little crazy, but voices. What are the voices like on the Catholic coast? Well, if their greeting is yasas, is what I wrote down, then it kind of has this has 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 sound to it, right? And this is just being silly. But when you hear on NPC talking, they're like, yasas, my friend, and a welcome to Kath. Wait, I think I got kind of Scottish with it. Yasas. How, the, like the, uh, the Greeks have a very staccato sound to the voices, and you can do that too. Or you can get kind of flowy like this and jumping up and down like a leprechaun, right? But if you have a sense of at least one or two words, like let's say yasas, then you can improvise some other name, uh, voice things like names. Like what's the name of the fruit vendor in Kath? Well, his name is Assad, right? <laughs> and all you're doing is just winging it based on this sort of single phonetic piece. And maybe you don't do a lot of voices. You can tell that I don't because the minute I start doing them, I get all bumbly. But if you do voices and you do have some of these key cultural cues, it's going to help. Next, we have three pieces that kind of all go together and they involve character creation. And that is bonds, vows, and stories. If you have these four cultural tones or notes hit as the DM, and then you have a player who wants to create a character or be involved with a character from that culture, these little keynotes are going to give you some of the guts to improvise bonds, vows, and stories. The backstories of the Catholic coast, for example, should involve, you know, the jungle and maybe this sort of caste system. Or if we sort of switch gears and we go over to um, the Deadlands and Innsmouth, and there's some character creation going on there. We need to get this sort of black soil into, uh, into that explanation. Or maybe, remember what we were talking about, Abar? Maybe the miners who say Abar in the morning, maybe they all have, um, you know, this fundamental core value, which is mining is the most important thing in life. And that core value, which is one of your bullets, can pipe right into a bond or a vow with a player which is never to, to ignore the call of a minor of Iridrum, right? And so, ooh, that's an interesting bond. Okay, as the DM, I'm definitely going to, you know, bang that drum. I'm going to, you know, send up the call from the miners that they need help from any adventurers who can come. And this bond is going to make this player, like, highly motivated to go get involved in this story. Now, as usual, when I'm doing a podcast, I don't have all this crazy stuff figured out. I have my bullets to go off of. And so you'll probably notice that when I'm improvising specifics, I start to squirrel a little bit, right? I start to be a little less sure of myself. You should hear that in my voice here on the podcast. But I think the power of the bullet method is that it gives you somewhere to begin. And if that somewhere to begin then leads you to write more things down, which is definitely more comfortable, great. But if it also gives you somewhere to begin to improvise at the table, and you've got that creative sort of momentum going and you've got that creative trust with your players where you feel comfortable improvising and, and playing with concepts, then the bullet method has, has made itself worthwhile. And this is why I really believe in these four bullets for creating your cultures. The greeting, the trigger custom, the core values, and a single visual cue. 
Those four bullets are what you need to create a culture. And it doesn't hurt to know where the culture is in your world. That could give you another starting point. Oh, it's these guys down in the jungle. Okay, let me do my four bullets. Now, all kinds of other details need to be come up with improvised, created, voiced over the coming months as your adventures unfold. But this is how you begin. Now, as a final little post note here, this method that I've been going crazy about, this bulleting method, we actually are doing a panel on it at RINCON in Tucson in a few weeks. And so if you guys can make it out to RINCON, that would be great. But we're going to be talking about the bulleting method. And I'm excited about it because, as you guys know, I, I live and die by this method. My brain just can't hold long-form adventure data. I need micro-bullets, and that's why I really wanted to drive this creating cultures four-bullet method home in this, the 30th episode of RPG Mainframe. Yes, yes, and double yes. It has been such an honor, you guys, to, to, to make this journey from the very first RPG talk all the way here to the 30th podcast, and also to see how close we're now coming to 500 patri patrons on the Patreon page, a goal that I basically just put in there as a placeholder. I never really thought we would reach that, to be brutally honest. And uh, if we can reach that 500 patron goal, we are going to have a blast with it. We're going to do some special events. We're going to run some games and like we're going to get into some stuff. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. So please, as always, I ask, help spread the word about Runehammer if you like listening to the podcast and like seeing some of the print and play stuff that comes up. Um, also, please keep your eye on runehammer.games on Facebook. That's where I sort of post my latest and greatest as life goes forward. And I hope that I can see you guys down at Rincon in Tucson. And enough plugs and postscripts and footnotes. I'm going to get out of here. So get your journals out, guys. Get your map out. And start to boldly create cultures with just four bullets. And let me know, is this, is this method useful? Uh, does this work when it hits the table? And you guys will be finding out from me soon, too. Because I'm about to start a brand new campaign. And this is one of my starting points right here. My players are gathering. I've got my table set up. We're doing a hybrid sort of 5e ICRPG crazy fest and really looking forward to getting some dice back on physical table. You know, online play is great, too, but nothing beats just homies around the table at your house having a beer and playing some badass D&D. All right. So you guys keep it real out there. Don't steal. You're always going to get a deal. This is Ingrid Bernal up here in the Kinder Peaks. Just, uh, you know, a humble painter and fisherman living the village life. I'll see you guys on the internet, and until then, make this world just a little bit more better than the way you found it, all right? And uh, thanks once again to all you patrons here on Patreon. This has been RPG Mainframe, episode 30. I'm signing out. You, 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 you.